I'm Al Filreis, and this is Poem Talk at the Writer's House, where I have the pleasure of convening three friends in the world of contemporary poetry and poetics to collaborate on a close but not too close reading of a poem or poems. We'll talk, maybe even disagree a bit, and perhaps open up the verse to a few new possibilities, and we hope gain for a poem that interests us, some new readers and listeners. And I say listeners because Poem Talk poems are available in recordings made by the poets themselves as part of our Penn Sound archive, writing.upenn.edu slash pensound. Today I'm joined here in Philadelphia in our brand new Wexler studio at the Kelly Writers House by Lily Applebaum, who is a longtime member of the Writers House community, a writer and keen thinker about social media and poetry and poetics and contemporary art curator of the Brodsky Gallery and teaching assistant for ModPo, a free and open course on modern and contemporary U.S. poetry. And by Herman Beaver, scholar, critic, teacher, and poet, whose most recent poems have appeared in Milis, the Langston Hughes Colloquy, and Versadelphia, who teaches, among other things, a course on the literatures of jazz, both undergrad and graduate chair of Africana Studies here at Penn, whose new book, Manuscript, is entitled, Herman, what do Put we call things it? in order. Subtitle? Geography and the Political Imaginary in Toni Morrison's Fiction. I'm excited about that. And who is, I'm pleased to say, a longtime friend of the Writer's House and indeed a member of our advisory board. And by Alan Golding, who teaches 20th and 21st century poetry and poetics at the University of Louisville and is the director of the annual Literature and Culture Conference there with faculty appointments in English and Women's and Gender Studies whose book from Outlaw to Classic Canons in American Poetry has strongly shaped the way we in the poetry poetics field talk about the relationship between avant-gardism, anthologization, and canon, and among whose current book projects is one that has fascinated me, Isn't the Avant-Garde Always Pedagogical? Welcome back to the Writer's House. Alan, so glad you made the trip. Thank you, yeah. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. (laughs) It's great to see you. And uh, so, Lily? Hi, Al. Thanks for coming downstairs to here at the Writer's House to join us. And Herm, always good to see you, my friend. Yes, good to be here, Al. In fact, Thanks. we hung out just Last 18 night. hours ago That's watching right. a basketball game. What fun. Well, we are, uh, the four of us here today, to talk about two short poems by Tyrone Williams that appeared in the book published by Omnidon in 2008 called On Spec. Our two poems appear in the first section of that book, and that section is called Eschenutics. E-S-H-U-N-E-U-T-I-C-S. And the first poem, written by H. Self, or written by his self, is indeed the first poem in the section and the very first poem in the book. Can't, and that's can't, C-A-N-T, without uh, an apostrophe or an abbreviation, is our second poem, and it appears fourth in the book. Our recording of the two poems in Penn Sound comes from a reading Williams gave at the Bowery Poetry Club in December 2007, prior to the book's publication, as part of the Segway series. So here now is Tyrone Williams performing Written by H. Self and Kant. Written by H. Self. The signature public, the only avant-garde behind invention, wheelchairs in the street. Type A bleeds through the page or screen it becomes. A pool as it were, one drop rules. Individual talent divides tradition into ties, tents, and nationalized tribes. Catches catch can and market share erosion. 
Staggered leaves piggybacked the gap. John Henry busted by King. Gentlemen, E thinks, as the bespoken. It was the other kind of happy feet I wanted. Guess these shoes will have to have. Can't, for Thomas Green Bethune. Thou he blows, plus tusk, crushed into grins. Grins host too, guest of impish nature, her Fort Dot jewels. Glassified behind blank opposable pupils, a habit perfected, perhaps memory, by for the dicey veil. Autodidact dialectic stage in rent to rent crowded houses, a sea to har harpoon tom- terrible toms, tom tom stutter, vac sea. Gone but for language, music, imitation, and perhaps memory. Owns no umbrella to forget to splay open like a bucket. Can't cast down, can't go singing in the there. Wow, there's so much here. I it might be a good way to start by um, sort of acknowledging the dense elusiveness of these poems, and maybe start with written by H. Self, and maybe we can throw out on the table some of the illusions. Alan, you want to start with one? Um, just one? <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go one each and go around okay. a couple times. All right. Elliot, obviously. <laughs> so, and it's tradition in the individual, individual talent? Individual talent, um leading into Du Bois and the Talented Tenth. Can you, in a sentence, say what Eliot is saying in that famous essay? Um, Sure. So the allusion specifically is to Eliot's influential essay, Tradition and the Individual Talent. Um, And the core of that argument is to theorize what Eliot means by tradition as a way, really, of carving out a space for himself in the emergent map of modernist poetry. Um, and what the individual talent, the individual emerging young writer has to do is immerse himself, and I'm using the male adverb advisedly there because it is um, the poet is a male for Eliot at this point in time. So the emergent poet, to be taken seriously, to become a real poet, has to immerse himself in um, what we've been calling in previous conversations the canon, the tradition, or what Eliot in rather mystical and mystifying terms calls the mind of Europe. So essentially, if you don't, um, if you're not saturated in 2,500 years of previous um, canonical writing, then you're not equipped to be a poet. Perfect lead-in, Hermit. I was going to leave it open about which illusions we would each do, but I kind of hope you'll do written by his self, written by H. Self. So it's a really important illusion, no? Um, An illusion to the slave narrative, which often um, carries that phrase in its title. So one thinks of Frederick Douglass's narrative, written by himself. And why does he have to make that a subtitle? Why is that important? He has to make it a subtitle because um, the audience for the slave narrative comes into reading a text like that with a, a measure of skepticism as to whether or not the uh, freed person, ex-slave, escaped slave, has written the story or whether or not it's been written for him. And so written by himself is a way to testify to the fact that uh, the escaped slave is the author of his own words. 
So just by those two illusions, and really the third one, because uh, there's Du Bois talented tenth, we already sort of know what critique is being offered here. But let's keep going with illusions, Lily. Also, I think the one drop rules is like an allusion to uh, theories about race and racial purity. So like one drop of African blood means that you are racially black or vice, you know, um, as a racial definition by um, imagined as like bloodlines and being inherited that way. And that's led up to by the punning on type A bleeds through the page so that blood comes through the writing so that inscribing oneself has to do with bloodlines and legal definitions. All right, let's go back for another round. This is fun. I like this. Any other allusions? Well, one thing that um, the poem alludes to, I think, that Eliot's notion of tradition would emphatically exclude would be the black folk and vernacular traditions alluded to in the phrases Staggered Lees and John Henry. What do we want to say about John Henry's role here? Well, John Henry is uh, certainly for black men the the metaphor for, um, one, uh, taking on huge amounts of labor uh, to prove oneself, but it's also refers and dying to the, as and a dying result, as a result, think, yeah. and it, it also refers obviously to the to the folktale of John Henry, and his um, competition against the steam drill, mm-hmm. um, and John Henry's claim that you know I'm going to beat the drill. I, I forget the actual rhyme from the yeah. from the folk song, but um, we have what we call now in the present moment the John Henry complex. Yeah, can you spell that out? Uh, the John Henry complex is uh, the feeling that some black men have that they have to that they are up against tremendous odds and they have to overcome those odds, even if it's at their own expense. So uh, a mythic African American folk hero who at the time was going against 19th century um, industrial mechanistic optimism and realism because he was a throwback by using his body to do better than a machine did, but over time actually creates a tremendous amount of sympathy for those of us who really honor people who still work. Uh, well, and so and he, he's a complicated figure, isn't well, he? Well, if you think about it, he's also a metaphor for the anxiety about being replaced. Right, which is an exi- anxiety right. we all feel now. Right. Yeah. Right. And John Henry actually is said to have been possibly a real person. Uh, who helped dig one or another of the mountain tunnels through the mountains. We like to think south to north, but it's not clear. It might have been north to south. But I actually think um, from northern Kentucky into southern Ohio. So the Cumberland Gap actually heads us from south into north with Cincinnati being a really important location, not just you know in books like Beloved, but just in the mythic. And of course... Tyrone Williams is a Cincinnati poet right now. He's born in Detroit, but he's been in Cincinnati. So I, I think keep thinking of the hundreds of thousands of migrants who came northwest into northern Kentucky and into southern Ohio through that gap. It seems to me almost a following north to freedom. I may be overreading that. But well, there's a, there's a lot of specific references to Cincinnati geography. In actually, book. in the book. Yeah. So maybe that reading is supported by that. But Lily staggered Lees? I mean, I thought Robert E. Lee, but I think that's wrong. Well, it? actually, I don't know, because I think 
your reading of the gap, if you think of the Cumberland Gap, and then you think of the Cumberland Gap's like strategic role in the Civil War, that could lead you to think about Robert E. Lee as the commander of the Confederate Army. But Stagger Lee is not Staggered Lee, but Stagger Lee is a folk song. Um, and most of this knowledge is coming from like very brief Googling. So I may <laughs> apologize if there are, are folk you gonna historians. Sing it? Can we who, sing no. the song? No. <laughs> I'm not going to sing it, but it, it tells a story that was an actual story and then like sort of rose to more mythic proportions or whatever of a man named Stagger Lee who was a black um, like pimp. I heard it, saw him described on the, and like he ran a, um, like a prostitution ring on a Mississippi riverboat type of a situation so he got into an altercation with billy lyons and shot and killed billy lyons for taking his hat quote unquote um and so that's like what the song is about but it came to, he came to be a figure who represented the first line of the song is stagger lee was a bad man everybody knows so it's like representing this like anti-authoritarian um black man standing up to a white man establishment by shooting someone just for the silliness of getting into an argument and stealing his hat. The signature public, the only avant-garde behind invention, wheelchairs in the street. Type A bleeds through the page or screen it becomes. A pool as it were, one drop rules. Individual talent divides tradition into ties, tents, and nationalized tribes. Catches catch can and market share erosion. Staggered leaves piggyback the gap. John Henry busted by Keaton. Gentlemen, E thinks, as the bespoken. It was the other kind of happy feet I wanted. Guess these shoes will have to have. So we have a series of illusions that add up to what? I guess that's one question. And then at the same time, I hope you all will entertain this question simultaneously. Uh, the mode is dense layering, lots of puns, almost comically at times. Certainly Busted by Keaton is a tremendously funny. So I would love for you both to say what you think the critique here is of Eliotic notions of literature and tradition, uh, self-writing, and also how the mode supports that, if it does. Who wants to take a shot at that, Herm? Well, I think uh, as I was reading these poems, I kept thinking of uh, Chris Naylor's idea of singing the holes in history. Mm. And uh, that's clearly what I think he's he's doing in these poems. But, right, it's, it's, it's layered... Um, uh, there are a tremendous amount of illusions piled on top of one another. So the the, the poem is a, a a deep rumination on on race and racial identity, but it's but it's also about the ways that the myths of race and racial identity um, collide with how you perform racial identity Perf and performing here in a kind of writing. Right. Alan, what kind of writing would you say, if you well, were teaching your students this poem, what would you tell them about the kind of writing it is? I mean, one place it clearly comes from is language writing. Definitely. And, um, but language writing has had many offshoots. And so one place I would locate the Williams poem is in... Uh, a recent, especially, I mean, Alden Nielsen has traced this back decades, but I'll call it 
a recent um, experimental tradition in African-American poetry um, that one might associate among slightly older generations with Nate Mackey, Ed Robeson, Harriet Mullen, um, lots of people from there coming on down. Um, and one feature of that, um, emer- well, one feature of that experimental tradition, I mean, Russell Atkins and yeah, earlier, that's, that's actually, we can, go, we can go that's way back, you know, and we can go back to Hughes, who I think is alluded to in this poem, actually. Where do you think? Um, I'm playing with the idea that happy feet? behind, it was the other kind of happy feet I wanted. Mm. Well, there's the 2006 animated musical, Happy Feet. Yes. But what I'm actually hearing underneath that is Hughes's, You Think It's a Happy Beat? That's no, great. from Montage of a Dream Deferred. Yeah. Let's together, the four of us, close read the first stanza, the first three lines, and then we'll move to Kant, and we can go back to this poem. This is really powerful, Three first three lines, and given what we've already said, it shouldn't be that hard. The signature public, the only avant-garde behind invention, a coming from, written by H. Self. What do we do with that? Herm, you start. Uh, written by H. Self uh, usually is followed by the signature of the of the um, author of the slave narrative. So the signature public uh, is the, the, the public that requires uh, authentication of the, of the information. So the only avant-garde behind invention, any sort of uh, creativity or, or improvisation uh, is ultimately judged to be authentic by this audience that requires written evidence of our subject. So that's as, that's as avant-garde as we can be, right. constrained thus. Lily, do you want to add something to that, or did he finish the job? I feel like it's like a 19th century way to sensationalize the writing, so it's like, it makes it more exciting for the readers, and so there's this like ego or authorship um, by, the, by the writer, and I think he's playing with calling the avant-garde out on... Um, a little bit on like re- requiring that authorship and that sense of like one person was behind the narrative. That's great. Can you say more? And I'll ask Alan also to follow um, more. Let's be pointed about the critique that Tyrone Williams might be making, not just against uh, Eliotic traditionalism, but the uh, contemporary avant-garde. We're almost like wanting to watch someone do a trick or watch someone like, um, perform uh, something really clever or um, new and exciting and different, but in a way that um, is like for our entertainment as opposed to really respecting the intellect behind um, what that person produced and like the um, the politics or just the motivation behind the work. Mm. Terrific. Alan, do you have anything mm-hmm. to add to that? What, what might this poem be? Well, no, one thing that occurs to me to pick up on that is that there's a preoccupation um, with marketing and with economics, um, which would include, of course, the very successful marketing of the slave narrative as a genre um, and its marketing to a wide audience. Um, you know, we have all these references like tithes, catches, catch can, market share erosion. Um, the gap, the Cumberland Gap didn't even occur to me. I just read it as the store. That's what I thought too. And the the lees are jeans. Yeah, and poor and, John Henry. Right, and I think he's probably wearing those jeans. And again, I th- I think actually there's a kind of lurking pun on jeans as pants and jeans as in gene pool. 
here, um, given that we have the pool, as in gene the pool, blood. the one drop rule, the blood, yeah, yeah, et cetera. But the other thing that I thought of was uh, African-American culture's relationship to beat culture. Mm -hmm. um, and so uh, the only avant-garde behind invention, on some level, if you think about it, uh, the, the moment when somebody like Ornette Coleman comes on the scene. One of the things he's resisting is the idea that, that jazz has to be charted for it to be legitimate. Free jazz. Free jazz. And so if you think about it and you think about that in the way that that sparks off of the slave narrative, one of the things he's, he's anxious about is the notion of authorship. Oh, man. I mean, Ornette Coleman, lionized by the beats, the jazz-loving beats, may have had the same relationship to beat uh, innovation, beat avant-gardism, uh, as Tyrone Williams, or at least the speaker here, has to other kinds of avant-gardes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, behind uh, invention... Free jazz is, is something that they really wanted to... They would, the beats didn't want to commodify, but they certainly wanted to consume it and right. be identified with it. Right. Can't for Thomas Green Bethune. Thou he blows, plus tusk crushed into grins. Grins host too, guest of impish nature, her fort da jewels. Glassified behind blank opposable pupils, a habit perfected, perhaps memory, by for the dicey veil. Autodidact dialectic stage in rent to rent crowded houses. A sea to har harpoon tom, terrible toms, tom tom stutter, vac sea. Gone but for language, music, imitation, and perhaps memory. Owns no umbrella to forget to splay open like a bucket. Can't cast down, can't go singing in the there. So let's turn to Kant, which is the fourth poem in the book. Um, I'm, I'm just going to assume that we all agree that Written by H. Self is a kind of proem, a kind of uh, inscription or, you know, epigraph, although it is the first poem. But Kant is a little ways into the book. Let's do the same thing we did before. Let's uh, adduce some of the dense allusions. Herman, you want to go first? Okay, so at the end of the poem, owns no umbrella to forget to splay open like a bucket can't cast down. It's a direct reference to Booker T. Washington and his Atlanta exposition speech in 1896, um, where the speech begins with this notion of casting down your bucket where you are. Fantastic. Thank you. Lily, you want to add one? Um, I think the first line is kind of an obvious allusion to Moby Dick, so it's, but it's the he blows instead of the she blows, but this idea that like the only way you can know for sure where the whale is is by seeing the spout come up out of the ocean. Mm -hmm. um, Are there other Moby Dick allusions? Um, I think in the second stanza, last line, a habit, it, it looks like they forgot to put a space, but I think it's intentionally trying to make Ahab into the phrase a habit. Yeah. Yeah, Ahab can certainly become a habit. There might be a third Moby Dick <laughs> uh, reference. I think the veil might be one mm -hmm. of Ahab's speeches. Talks uh, and about the harpoon. That. Oh, yeah. And har the harpoons har and a sea. Mm -hmm. Right? Okay. Alan, any other uh, allusions we want to adduce um, here? Before? Actually, I, t I took the veil as Du Bois. Again, I suppose mm -hmm. I was reading Du Bois here because he's present in written by H. Self. Um, and so I was thinking of the Du Bois-Washington debate because I agree with what Herman says about Washington's presence in those last few lines. Um, 
Should we talk about Thomas Green Bethune? Yeah, how about if I do that one? I mean, okay, I, I want to get that? into this game. So my, yeah. my illusion would be uh, agree with everything said so far. So here's a really obscure one. So this guy, Terrible Tom, yes, was a um, black singer and musician who did the title song for a Fred Williamson Western. And the title of that song in that movie was Boss Nigger. Wow. I, so t- uh, Terrible Tom has possibly a triple reference, right? The one you just mm-hmm. described. Yeah, I can. I know at least three. Yeah, yeah. right, exactly. <laughs> then there's Thomas Green Bethune, who was not mm-hmm. terrible, but who is a Tom, Thomas. And then there's, of course, the famous murderer who's, who's still in right. solitary confinement. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. he's the prisoner, like the longest held prisoner in solitary confinement. Exactly. And, and in prison became a leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, uh, which is a prison gang. Uh, Thomas Green Bethune, uh, African-American musical prodigy on the piano during the 19th century, what we now know as um, an, uh, suffering from autism, uh, and so uh, had uh, qualities of savantism. So he made an art seemingly without thought, and I think that's a real concern of Tyrone Williams in this book. Does anybody want to add to why that, why, why did I say that, that, that how you make music, how unthoughtfully you make music is an I- interesting issue, Herman? Well, it gives the lie to the notion that uh, people of European descent are inherently... Uh, better able and better disposed to produce culture. If you can produce culture without thought, then the idea of white supremacy is is invalidated. Pure imitation, right? Because uh, Thomas Green Bethune was able to listen to a piano as he wandered around, sort of banged the walls, and then suddenly pr- reproduced it. So, ha ha, you know. And really? he was also blind. Um, so the idea, the sort of horrible kind of irony that like, he literally had to be taught what his race was because he couldn't physically see the color of his skin. So this idea that, like, if there's any better example of how race is sort of a construction or really a fiction, like, it's this blind man who has to be told that he's black and that that, what that means. Who wants to deal with the title? Um, So Kant is, like, an allusion to the... um, by us just saying it on the radio, it sounds like we're saying can't as in the abbreviation for cannot, but mm-hmm. it does. It actually doesn't unable. have unable to, it, although it doesn't have that apostrophe in the title. Um, but it's also hypocritical or sanctimonious talk and usually like political. So political can't meaning sort of like, I think like kind of pandering to your audience, maybe like I'll say anything to get elected, even if it goes against my principles or party principles or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also an allusion to like a cantor in a church or um, musical sounds um, and singing. A song or a poem, indeed. Mm-hmm. So what do we do with that, Alan or Herman? Uh, that title, what is, how does that work out? I mean, one thing I would like to add to what uh, Lily said about Kent as a slightly more positive reading is um, the definitions of Kant that, say, Daniel Tiffany works with in Infidel Poetics and in a lot of his work, where Kant is um, a kind of in-group language or jargon or vernacular. Um, so that's a slightly more positive sense of Kant, um, where it, it's, in, it's empowering and it defines identity and it well, defines a marginalized identity. That, it, that's, I think that's... 
there's something to work with there because mm-hmm. if you think about being able to imitate musical language and you think about the ways that African-American musicians were, were sort of relegated to vernacular music, mm-hmm. but being able to listen to and imitate classical music, um, one of the things that it does is blurs that distinction. Mm-hmm. Um, and in, and, in, and with, a, with somebody named Blind Tom, he can't see the distinction. Yeah, I think this poem uh, is ultimately about the relationship between disability, mm-hmm. in the sense that we now mean it, disability, can't, can'tness, mm-hmm. uh, and the making of poetry as a resistance to can, you know, the art of can. I think he's interested, as so many contemporary postmodern poets are, in uh, exploring what happens when uh, language or music is either quasi non-intentional or somewhat automated or imitative or based on uh, borrowing, sampling, copying, stealing. And I think a lot of these idiomatic puns and torques are really drawing from all these resources. It's kind of a notational, implicitly notational lyric yeah. style, isn't it, Alan? Right, yeah. There's, there's a lot compressed into a, a little in in what is a way a very traditional lyric sense. So we have a traditional yeah. lyric approach, and yet it the work mm-hmm. happily for me, and I think for all of us, um, happily sends you to the searching now yeah. typically Foliates, online that you do outwards. to mm-hmm. fill out all those notations, and you begin to learn. For one thing, African American folk history and a kind of social underside. So let let's let's see if we can say some general things about what Tyrone Williams is doing. Let's go around and say what we think generally is being done in this work. Maybe Herman is willing to start. I think that um, Williams has always been interesting to me, though his work is is deeply rooted in an intellectual approach to looking at the ways that we fall into real patterns in the creation of history and the management of history. And, and so, again, singing the holes in history the way in which history with a capital H is not is just not adequate to talk about all the stuff that that gets on the table. So if we if we think about written by H self, that kind of that that notion of identity being consanguineal is 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 specious. But on some level, it held sway for decades. Hmm. Terrific. Thank you. Uh, Lily, what do you think he's doing generally? Can we say? Well, I think like we talked at the beginning of this about um, the illusions being dense and stacked on top of each other and sometimes they interrupt each other or like the puns run in from one illusion to another. And I feel like it's talking about a way that as a contemporary person with whatever your racial or sexual orientation or identity is, you like this theory that you're sort of a composite of other people who have come before you and either had that identity or had to struggle with that identity and um, maybe referenced to you by this like autodidact slash dialectics line. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you brought um, that phrase up because it's so important. It's important, but I still don't really know what it means. It's really confusing. But just this idea that as, and especially starting written by himself as the first poem in the collection, it's like, um, how do I feel about being a person who technically sort of writes in this tradition, even though I don't really want this tradition necessarily of like slave narratives and this type of personal testimony? Like, how do I just grapple with that as the history of people who also identify themselves the same way that I do. And so the autodidact dialectics has something to do with the way that Blind Tom was exploited by his owner. 
Um, and so the rent-to-rent crowded houses has everything to do with the fact that people were packing uh, opera houses to hear him play. But the blank opposable pupils refers to the fact that black people were still thought of as being descended from apes. So, um, and refers lot, to his eyes. Right. And, mm-hmm. Right. And, right. And so like there's a lot, mm-hmm. a lot of historical signifying going on in this, in this poem. Yeah. Alan, uh, what, what is Tyrone Williams saying generally through this, this poetry? Um, I think I'd want to go back to his use of the term eschenudics. Um, as an overall term for the project, clearly a play on hermeneutics. Yep, Um, science of interpretation. And so what I take him to mean by eschenudics is cultural interpretation, um, interpretation of the variegated, very complex history of people of African descent on this continent and elsewhere, um, that interpretation engaged in from the position of the Eshu Legba trickster figure. Um, it An would be hard. It would God. be yeah. It would be hard to um, talk about these poems in terms of a of a voice or a self, as you um, very well laid out, Lily. Um, but there's a kind of informing um, eschenudic perspective, I think. Yeah. You know, so cultural interpretation conducted from that constantly mobile, tricky, ironic um, perspective of yeah, the African trickster. Eshu, the tr- trickster figure who's also the god of messages. So the message that you mm-hmm. receive might be tricking you. You know, so he he considered he he said in an interview he considered uh, making that Eschenudics the title of the book. So it's obviously a central idea. Okay, so if we're all quick, we can go around one more time just to add one last thing. So Lily, you want to add one thing quickly? I was doing some more research on Thomas Green Bethune, and apparently, like his first composition that he wrote was an imitation of the sounds of rain. Also, singing in the rain tries to do that, but it's like the imitation of rain is this equated with this like happy like do 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 dum do dum you know that happy starts feet. the beginning happy feet yeah, from the other um, poem yeah and I guess I'm not really sure what he's trying to say there but um maybe just that uh Bethune's uh autonomy and his like compositional skills were overlooked maybe or you know like he was just exploited and then there's this weird tradition of like in the 50s pretending it's the 20s again and singing in the rain, and then rain is suddenly, imitating rain is suddenly like a happy-go-lucky thing. Herman, uh, final word, last thing, last thought? Well, you know, riffing off of what Lily said, uh, I keep thinking about Booker T. Washington, and Booker T. Washington who wanted to imagine uh, an equality between blacks and whites. That on some level, whites found palatable, because built into that equality was subservience. Um, But what makes this so interesting in this poem is it's a performative subservience. It's a it's a it's a subservience to a certain end, and so can't go singing in the there. The there is the place where the power resides, and you're in you're in real trouble if you don't recognize that the that door is never going to open. Ah, interesting, Alan. The final thought. A modest observation about the title written by H. Self. I want to return us to that and simply point out that the contraction there 
is actually gender inclusive. So it's himself and it's herself. You know, it's Douglas and it's Harriet Jacobs, for instance. Um, and that it occurs to me that that title, as the first, as the title of the first poem in the book, introduces the idea of contraction. And this is very much a poetry of contraction and that plays with contraction. There's so much contracted or um, distilled into very short lines. And you know, the pun, as we've said, is one of the, the modalities here. Yeah. You know, a trope of contract. Yeah, that's great. Well, I'll just add one thing really quickly. Um, uh, Tyrone Williams' speaker in Written by self makes it clear that this is a continuing issue. Uh, type A blood bleeds through the page, but it also bleeds through the screen. And it is not the case that um, digital, a digital reception of writing obviates the need to discuss these kinds of issues. Well, we like to end Poem Talk with a minute or two of Gathering Paradise, which is a chance for us to spread wide our narrow hands to gather a little something really poetically good to hail or commend someone or something going on in the poetry world. Herman Beavers, can you gather some paradise? Yes, I want to point to two things that uh, we just did in my class, but I highly recommend. Van Jordan's Magnolia, uh, which is a wonderful collection of poems, and Tim Siebel's Fast Animal, uh, which was actually a finalist for the National Book Award uh, a couple years back. Terrific, Lily. I guess I'll just say my most recent poetry book that I bought, um, which is Patricia Lockwood's Motherland, Fatherland, Homeland Sexuals. And I really, really recommend it. She's probably my favorite younger contemporary poet. And her first book, Balloon Pop Outlaw Black, is also awesome. Fantastic. Alan Golding, gather some poems. Um, yeah, I'd say two things. Um, I want to mention Caroline Bergvall's um, most recent work, Drift which is uh, an extended riff. This is a radical oversimplification, but an extended riff on um, the old English poem, The Seafarer, um, mixed in with linguistic drift, the idea of segmental drift, multiple forms of drift. Um, this is something that is completely brilliant, magical to me in performance, in the way it splices um, oral performance, uh, percussion, digital visuals, um, just great. For a critical audience, um, I want to recommend in the most recent issue of Calbedian and David Lau's Lana Turner, a really interesting um, set of mini essays on the avant-garde, that hoary old topic, um, but some some pretty thought-provoking contemporary interventions, including a very good short one by Tyrone Williams, the subject of our conversation today. Fantastic. I have two uh, little gatherings of paradise. One is I recommend that listeners to this poem talk go to either Alan Golding's or Ron Silliman's or Bob Perlman's or Al Filris's Pen Sound author page and find a link to an hour-long discussion that we had that's centered on but not limited to Alan Golding's work. I don't know what title that's being given, but it shouldn't be hard to find, and it was recorded in November 2014. I also recommend the Brodsky Gallery at the Kelly Writers' House, which uh, our Lily Applebaum here curates. 
And uh, you don't have to just come to Philadelphia to 3805 Locust Walk to find it, although that's obviously the best place. There is a web presence. So if you, uh, if you come to the Writer's House site or you simply Google Brodsky Gallery, you're going to see something really great. And Lily, congratulations on that ongoing project. Well, that's all the autodidact dialectics we have time for on Poem Talk today. Poem Talk at the Writer's House is a collaboration of the Center for Programs in Contemporary Writing, the Kelly Writer's House at the University of Pennsylvania, and the Poetry Foundation, poetryfoundation.org. You can find Poem Talk at the Poetry Foundation website on the Penn Sound author pages of the poets we discuss at Jacket2 Magazine, jacket2.org, and on iTunes. Just search in the iTunes search box for Poem Talk, one word, and subscribe. Thanks to my guests, Lily Applebaum, Herman Beavers, and Alan Golding, and to our engineer, Zach Cardiner, and a sweet, thankful shout-out to Gary and Nina Wexler for making our dream of a recording studio here at the Writer's House a reality, and thanks to our editor, Allison Harris. This is Al Philreis, and I hope you'll join us again soon for another Poem Talk. <laughs>